Hi, everyone. Welcome to Here's the Thread. My name is Ala Jolly. And my name is Cleveland Deleuze. We're recording this episode on Friday, August 20th, 2021. Here's the Thread is about two immigrants who weave the thread through books, ideas, articles, political movements to talk about what it might take to stitch divided communities together to fight for common causes. Today, we're fo- we're continuing our focus on Isabel Wilkerson's cast, primarily the third part, titled Part 3, The Eight Pillars of Caste. Wilkerson focuses on the eight pillars that uphold the caste system, and today we're going to break it down for you. However, before we do do that, we want to start today's episode by acknowledging the events in Afghanistan. Yep. So just in case you're living under a rock or you're just really sick and tired of something imploding all the time in politics or in the world, we don't blame you. But the Taliban has taken over Afghanistan mere weeks into the United States, winding down joint operations with the Afghan government. And we're in the sort of first couple of days to a week of what could be a full-blown political and humanitarian crisis or rather ongoing political and humanitarian crisis due to decades and likely centuries of Western-driven destabilization. That's a very quick summary of very, very complex geopolitical um, events. Very true, yes. But, um, you know, if you are someone that has no real, real knowledge of who the Taliban even are and are just kind of putting them under this umbrella of like extremists that you know are stereotypically portrayed um they're actually um a group that started there under like help from the united states actually during the cold war because they were supposed to be insurgents against the soviet takeover of that region of the world and, um, you know, they were supplied with weaponry by um, the United States government and everything in order to kind of combat communism at the time. And when the communist threat, quote unquote, stopped, they had all of the funding or not funding, but just all of the weaponry that they had acquired from like support and through that. And because of their them driving out like the Soviets and everything, they were they saw themselves as the ones that would be in charge of their country now. And um, I believe Allah quoted a a John Oliver segment here. Yeah. Yeah. So we we I was thinking about you know what would be important or interesting context to provide with this. We are not experts by any means. Mm-mm. But we also do want to take this in a conversational way with you all and with with each other as we talk about this. So one, I think, interesting sort of segment to check out, um, or I think all of John Oliver's segments are typically fantastic. But in one of them, um, he talks about how the justification for U.S. involvement in 2001 and in other times in the region is planting the seeds of democracy. You might have, like, we're definitely, I think, old enough to remember George Bush saying that, but some of some of the, some of of the our listeners may not be, but 
um, that was constantly the 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 quote that we get torn that would get thrown at you, which is planting the seeds of democracy. I mean, um, as much as people would like to claim that we did that we didn't go in there to nation build, that's what we tried to do, and um, it's very clear that we failed, and we we're not the only party that has failed in this process. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. The people that could say that we weren't there to nation build, like you can, you can quote the most recent like press conferences by, mm-hmm. um, like political leaders, you know, mm-hmm. stating that like, oh no, that was never the case. But to some extent, like there were, there were times where that was the used, um the used argument as to why we are there and everything or why we stayed in that country for quite some time, even though, you know, it was two administrations ago where the, what they were saying now about like, we were there to make sure like we took out the enemies of the United States that happened two administrations ago and it took them till now to really remove military yeah. out of the area so I mean like there's some part there that contributes to nation building still as to why we said or at least like quote unquote nation building yeah I think all the parallels that you you know some of you all may have seen online comparing this to Vietnam I think are are very 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 well founded um, it's a lesson that we refuse to learn about the incredibly, incredibly complex um, act of building democracy or inspiring democracy. Um, I mean, that's one side of it. The other side of it is that we constantly take action, not just economically, but socially and militarily to disrupt the the good that is coming out of the countries that we're supposedly trying to nation build. So this includes taking their resources. It includes, um, we make moves that work for us when they work for us and that's about it. There are American corporations that are polluting third world countries and developing countries that then become you know, breeding grounds for extremist groups. And we don't take responsibility for the resources that we've taken away or for the communities that we've torn apart and then you know, come in with our big stick and say, we'll fix it with like gunpowder. And it's just, it's disappointing to me how many times this has happened and, and how many times this has happened without the news coverage that Afghanistan is getting, which is obviously, well, well, um, that is the amount of, of attention that it needs to be getting. But this has happened in, in countries in South America. This has happened in Latin America. This has happened countless number of times where we have been responsible, not just for the destabilizing itself, but for propping up governments and then them not being strong enough because we're terrible at what we do. Yeah, I think that's also like, it's quite evident as a way to showcase like how the United States kind of views problem solving in a sense in terms of like the greater aspect of not just the world but you can actually think within the united states itself where we tend to use militaristic forces to kind of 
and like not enforce because you can make the argument that enforce, but kind of lead the way in terms of these things. And you know, both me and my co-host Allah here aren't <laughs> aren't in any offices or anything to like see the slow turns of democracy and stuff but like there is like that sense of like why are we not using diplomats more once we've quote unquote like established some peace in like places you know and it's kind of crazy because that's apparent within the actual like content or not content but just like in this landmass that is the United States where you know, we can go back to police brutality that we've talked about, where the reason why there's a lot of problems between, like, citizens of, like, color and everything and, like, police officers is that we would use police officers to kind of enforce everything to these people, as opposed to spreading out that... um that task to other people that might be more well-versed in handling much more delicate situations, you know? So, yeah. That's a really interesting parallel. I don't think I've genuinely considered that as, like, (laughs) as the same thing that we do in other countries because it doesn't seem comparable, but I I think you're exactly correct. I think domestic policies right? Like behaviors of police departments or, um, you know, going far as far back as Jim Crow laws. Like if, if we look at the broken system that we currently live in domestically, it's very similar to our approach for how we deal with um, interacting with foreign countries that we think are, are below us or need, you know, help when, again, if you like, I mean, if, anyone that's interested in in trying to learn more about Afghanistan, if you look at pictures or sort of movements and what the society looked like before Soviet occupation in 79, um, you get a very different look at Afghanistan. Um, It was a very fast moving society. It was modern. It was, um, it was much more inclusive than you might imagine it to be. Um, And self-determination for any group of people, I think is, very important and 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 then this also comes down to what matters now right like what do we where do we go from here and and what do we prioritize now obviously we're in crisis mode um i've seen i think aoc and a couple of other sort of progressive politicians point out like we'll settle what happens or what you know try to understand what happened later but what we need to do now is um provide aid and refugee status to the people that are fleeing a, an extremely violent regime. Um, but at the same time, I think like we're in crisis mode all the time when we talk when we talk about this stuff though, we don't do it proactively enough to ever address it when it's not a crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's, um, there's one picture that I saw during when um, the crisis in Syria was going on with like some Syrian uh, protesters I think out in New York City maybe where um, someone was holding like this um, little poster 
that says like if you don't want to deal with refugees so much stop creating them which is true right like it we use it as like this big problem in the country at least like our political leaders like to use them as like a political tool disregarding the fact that they're people at the end of the day they're not just like quote-unquote problems you know and i think it's the same thing that we do to homeless people by the way like we we like to make them like a source of the problem and dehumanize who they are and like that's kind of sick but you know it's true like we've created our own to what people believe are nightmares and like oh we're we're like trying to welcome more people into this country and we're not even like economically stable ourselves blah 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 you know like um outside of the united states i know in the philippines like um there's a political leader that made a comment about um welcoming refugees in afghanistan and uh stating that the philippines doors are open for them you know um through through facebook very reliable source of information but you know anecdotal information um there's relatives of mine who are stating like or who are criticizing that statement rightfully so right if um you live in a third world country like it's kind of like how can you provide these people with resources if you're not also providing your people with sufficient resources already so i understand that whole fear thing about refugees however like i think that like political leaders in general just need to stop using refugees as kind of like a political tool and taking away the fact that they are still humans in the sense that like you know these people deserve like a better life than like what they would have you know yeah I think asylum seekers, you know, at the southern border are spoken about in the same way that lots of people are speaking about refugees now. Um, and again, I think you're correct, like the the sort of same dehumanizing um, terms with which people talk about unhoused populations are the same language that they use to talk about refugees. And I was thinking about um, this, I think it was a tweet I saw that said, the same people that are saying that, why do you want to let in refugees when we have like poor people of our own? And then those are the same people that won't take care of the poor people that we have now. Like, I don't know why that's a mutually exclusive phenomenon. It's not. You can build programs and stop spending money on things like the military industrial complex and instead spend that money on regular people and accept refugees and help them too. You can't, it's not, you don't have to pick one or the other. We're allowed to do both and we can do both. We definitely, definitely have the money and the resources to fix our problems and to clean up the messes that we made. Yeah. Like I think that's uh it's a good transition as well to like, kind of one of the points that we have here right like after addressing refugees like where do we go from here and that you know we've ended this uh crazy 20-year war now you know that we 
we've been quote unquote fighting or the nation has been fighting and like it, it's so crazy like how much money our government likes to sink into the into like the military and everything you know and then like it's funny to also see some people upset you know because there was that one there's the image of the the Taliban in the in the palace right and these guys are holding like what seems to be american rifles and not um like the AK47s that people used to think about back then and then there's also that one image of like these guys riding on a US home V you know and people are upset it's like that's where my taxpayer dollars are going but it's like i mean you guys knew that there were people are maintaining leaders who like have stakes within like these kind of things right so of course that's where your money is going to go because they're the reason why like they lobbied for your politicians to be in power so that, you know, at the end of the day, they get to make money while they spend your money. And wouldn't you like in like, just like a broader sense of like thinking, right? Like wouldn't a person like their money spent towards like the well-being? maybe not others. If you're like selfish, like a lot of people are, but like just more so things that would benefit you. Like, if we put it in that frame of thinking, right? Wouldn't wouldn't people want something that benefits them? Like, in reality, like, the whole situation in the Middle East, that has benefited, like, no one in the nation, really, other than the idea of security, right? But then, like, nowadays, you have people really upset with the security of the nation. They distrust their own government. Like, if we looking at like what COVID vaccines oh no the government's chipping people like that one that's the furthest from the truth bought an iPhone in the past like 10 years you've already been chipped technically so that should not be the concern but you know like taking like going back to like the more grounded point here is like there's things where, like, people just vote because they like someone instead of actually, like, thinking about why are they voting for them. What are the stakes that this person has if they're in the position of power, right? Like, this last election, I think it's kind of tough. Where you're, you're kind of put in a corner, right? Where you, you, might, it, you might not like both candidates. It's like, there's... There's a lesser of two evils, but then even now it's like, is it was it really a lesser of two evils? It's like the the other person that lost isn't even taking the loss in like a gracious way. He's still looking to undermine the fact that like he lost in the election. So you know that's kind of that's kind of like the crazy part now where I think people need to educate themselves more about the correct topics. I don't think people need to educate themselves about, like, strung out theories and instead, like, focus on the real thing, right? Like, things that you can actually, like, put hard evidence towards. 
like where government spending goes. That's pretty much pretty public. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it, what it comes down to trying to bounce off of the point you just made is like shared reality. Like, do we all agree that the sky is blue? Like, can we start there? And do we all agree that like, you know, masks protect you from getting sick? Um, and I think the more misinformation that institutions like Facebook um, and other avenues promote or allow to be promoted, the more our shared reality starts to come apart. Like it's, it's like hanging by a thread. And whatever whatever shared reality that we do share now needs to be built back up to levels where, you know, people were lining up for, I think the polio vaccine. Like I was looking at like pictures, like black and white pictures and, and the polio vaccine literally changed a generation of human beings. Cause you, you no longer had to worry about your child getting polio. It was like, it was mind bending how amazing it was. It was magic. Yeah. And now like, essentially a couple of generations later, we're in a place where we can't trust, right? And then I don't always think I blame people for that. I don't think it's as simple as individuals believing that. I think it's a collective erosion of trust in public institutions. And if we're looking at public institutions that are not transparent about where money goes, where politicians are not transparent about who's backing them, where police officers don't get indicted for committing murder, right? You, you pull these things together and I start becoming less skeptical of why people are so distrusting of something like a vaccine. I, I don't think I generally, or at least automatically blame anyone for not trusting the vaccine. I think it, I think it comes down to building equity. And I think from building equity and from removing money out of politics, you can start making, like taking real strides in, in progress. And I think one of the things that I pulled out for this episode was I went and found, um, is at first I remembered um, my, one of my favorite characters from the show called New Girl is Schmidt. And he makes a reference, I think in the first season somewhere about um, asking people if, did no one listen to Eisenhower? Um, And it's a reference to Eisenhower's final speech of his presidency where he talks about the industrial military or sorry the military industrial complex and he says um, I'm going to read out a small excerpt in the councils of government we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought by the military industrial complex the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist we must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military missionary of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. That was a couple of sentences from his speech. And the, and the reason that you know I bring it up is because this was written uh, 60 years ago now, when he, um, when he was ending his term. And 
this was well before the the events that we're witnessing now and it's insane how accurate his speech is to today's time and if you look at like line item by line item budget for the um, defense department it's it doesn't make any sense because these companies that produce tanks or planes or guns have a relative monopoly on on what they get to make and these defense contractors they just they essentially pull a number out of their butt and then charge the american government and then we pay for that and there's almost no repercussions for safety standards. I remember there was a, there was a big uh, scandal with the new um, F, I believe it's the F-80. I don't remember the number, but it's the new F-series plane. And it had like so many glitches in it. And we were like billions of dollars into investing into it. And yet we can't, we can't come up with any sort of accountability for that money. And the minute that the State Department wants to spend like an extra $100,000 on aid to a country that's like recovering from an earthquake, we're suddenly can't find the money. Um, and I think it comes back down to the other thing you said, Cleveland, about why, why aren't we using diplomats? Why are we not in the, in the very difficult and nuanced job of building relationships with communities in other countries? Why are we not spending money on aid? Why are we not um, working in coalitions? Why are, we, why are we using the military to do something that could potentially be done more peacefully, uh, less expensively, and with more longevity if we pursued diplomatic and negotiated coalitions to do the same work that we've clearly been failing at every time we try to do this? Yeah, it's pretty crazy, like, just how, how deeply invested, like, the nation is towards, like, the more, like, warmongering side of, of everything, you know? And, like, yes, the United States is rooted in a revolution. However, like, that revolution was rooted in ideas, and I think that's what's gotten lost where we've just been very happy to exercise our, like, that big stick, right, that um, Roosevelt used to ha- walk around with. And that big stick is aging, but it's still doing its job right now. However, you know, it, it, it'll deteriorate at some point. And I think that's that's what we're kind of seeing right now is that, like that power that the United States held because it was it was held under like just the dynamic of power as opposed to like actually like helping other nations out by like properly advising them about how to do stuff is coming back to bite its butt you know where now yeah we have these things where like you have you've instilled the idea of democracy towards the world great but like quite a lot of democracies are rooted in corruption and 
there was at some point, right, where also in the United States, like, that corruption didn't seem so apparent. Like, people were would look at other nations who might have, like, corrupted presidents and just be like, oh, that's them because they're not as civilized or as evolved as we are in our thinking. But now we're seeing and, like, you know, I think that's a theory that, like, people can subscribe to is that, like, corruption in our government is actually pretty, like, rampant. It's just that people hide it much better here because we're willing to not look at it when it's like when there's a face that we trust that's like in front of it right like we just don't want to acknowledge that it can exist here yeah i think you're uh, you're totally correct it's just accepted corruption it's still corruption i mean i if you take like the top i don't know 10 longest serving Republican senators or Congress people and you put them and you pull all their biggest sponsors and you like pull their top bills that they've sponsored, they match like identically. The things that they support come directly from the money that they're getting. It's not even, you actually can't even find them sponsoring anything that they don't actually have to sponsor because they're supported by big corporations. It's, it's a joke. Yeah. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll sort of transition into the, into the book now, but we were wanted to get, you know, a few minutes of talking about what was happening in the world Mm -hmm. and, you know, pause by, by saying that, you know, at least the both of us believe that there are current problems and current priorities that we need to keep in mind. So that includes aid to Afghanistan as well as um, expedited refugee processing for for the vulnerable communities that are trying to get out of get out from under the Taliban mm-hmm. and you know more broadly and in a larger conversation stop nation building and end the military industrial complex so that we're not continuously feeding these corporations to go and destroy communities that we don't want them to do that and we somehow still have our taxpayer dollars being used for exactly that purpose did I miss anything, Clayton? No, I think you summarized it pretty well. I think we can now, yeah, fully transition towards cast. And, right. like, we... I do want to preface to our viewers, our listeners, that some of these notes are from a little while back. So, um, might not be full connection sometimes. But, um, also, I think, like, I don't think we should shy away if there is, like, you know, a comparison that we might be able to make, not necessarily to the exact, like, one-on-one-to-one crisis of Afghanistan, but just, like, anything that she's pointed out that could be, like, contrasted to, like, things that the United States just has done in general in terms of a foreign policy and such. But, yeah. We'll yeah, always try right. to stay current, but excuse us if we're we're playing it a little bit casual. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, the third part of cast, which as Cleveland outlined, is called the eight pillars of cast, and she essentially puts out eight pillars that the caste system or the system of caste building depends on. 
And so essentially what we're going to do is we're going to go in order. We're going to start with pillar one and we're going to talk about what Isabel Wilkerson uh, talks about in the book, um, where we really connected with her and then places where we might add more, like from either our experience or from current events um, or from history where we would, we would see the point go further or where we related, you know, very strongly. So to start off, the, the first thing she does is um, pillar number one is divine will and the laws of nature. And this might be a good sort of recap moment for anyone that hasn't listened to episode one or two. Um, the first, the first uh, section that she gets into is the story of what the caste system is and where it comes from. There's lots of versions to this story. Um, and the one that Wilkerson spells out is that before the beginning of human awareness, they asked Manu, the all-knowing, about the proper order, the laws of all the social classes, as well as those born in between. To fill the land, he created the Brahmin, the highest caste from his mouth, the Kshatriya from his arms, the Vaishya from his thighs and from his feet, the Shudra, the lowest of the Varnas or divisions of man. Unmentioned among the original four Varnas were those deemed so low that they were beneath even the feet of the Shudra. They were living out the afflicted karma of the past. They were not to be touched and some not even to be seen. And I'm going on in her quote where she says, their very shadow was a pollutant. They were outside of the caste system and thus outcasts. They were the untouchables who would later come to be known as the Dalits, the subordinate caste of India. So this is her introduction into pillar number one, where she really gets into the connection between spirituality and the caste system that lots of uh, hierarchical societies have used to keep people, you know, to abide by the ladder that that society has created. Um, Cleveland, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about um, the next point that you've got written down? Yeah, and um, I was gonna say, like, if you're a listener, you could be asking, well, that's how the caste system in India was created. How does that pertain to this idea of a caste system in the United States? Well, the United States has uh, had their primary religion that was uh, Christianity. And in Christianity, there was the story, the curse of Ham, who is um, one of the children of uh, Abraham, I believe. Let me get, give me give me one second. To... Doing some on the fly fact checking for you. No, uh, imposed by Noah, not Abraham. Noah. There we go. Noah's son, Ham, who had seen his father naked. And it was against law back then to do that. And so the idea is that, um, what is it? Because of um, this, it created the divide of uh, how the Canaanites... Um, became subjected to the Israelites. However, later on, it became interpreted about 
this idea of uh, black skin being the subject to like slavery. And so that kind of idea does per- did persist and I think continues to persist in the United States. And one of the biggest things that she basically says here is that like through divine will, there's already this higher power that is that has created the caste system. It's not even our own like creation, right? Is the idea it's that something else bigger than us made it. And because they're bigger than us, we therefore must follow it. And to that that creates the one of the first layers of like fear in a caste where oh this being that was much greater than us created something already to question it means that I would be unfaithful to that being. And so, you know, people are very scared, especially if they're very faithful people, of, um, like, basically, like, rejecting their faith. So in order to not reject their faith, they elect to stay in the system, no matter how, like unfavorable it might be for them i'm not sure oh yes amazon thank you scared the crap out of me there (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. Ooh, just said something but but yeah um there's there's that whole idea of fear right where the deeper we go into like the next sets of pillars that um she talks about we're going to see how much fear does play a role in enforcing the caste system. Yeah. Um, you know what you're talking about reminds me of? It reminds me of um, the movie about um, the Catholic uh, abuse scandal, the, 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 the scandal where in uh, Boston, why am I blanking on the spotlight? Spotlight is a movie about um, the, the scandal and the, the Catholic diocese in boston where countless number of priests and we had a follow-up story i believe in 2016 um with an even bigger set of um priests that abuse children and in that they interview or the movie portrays the interview of a of, of a uh, a survivor and he says that you know he's from a a low income family in Boston and, and that being given any attention by a priest was considered like a relationship with God. And one of the most like pinnacle moments in that story is when he asks, how do you say no to God? Right. And it, and to me, I don't, I know it's not a direct parallel, but it's sort of reminding me of, of something very similar where, you intertwine religious power and spirituality and and the construct of religion with this social construct that you're trying to ascribe to it. And you put those two two things together. And now not only do you have to walk away from society, you have to walk away from like almost an innate sense of self, which is what spirituality is, right? And you have to do both of those things. So it just increasingly gets harder and harder for you to ever consider rebelling against it because you have to have a crisis outside of yourself as well as within yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And that 
that's just too much for people a lot of the time, you know, like, so, because you don't want to go through that, just, you become content with the system, and you accept it for what it is, and don't say anything about it, and, like, I think that does feed into her next point here. Yeah. Um, I think I think before we move on though, I'd love to read this Frederick Douglass quote that we pulled from oh. um, about the work of white churches. Oh, I'll yeah. read this and then we'll go on to pillar two. Um, so Frederick Douglass had this to say about the work of white churches. And he said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Yeah, very strong statement. Very strong statement there by uh, Frederick Douglass. And yeah, I think it feeds into this next point of heritability. And uh, this is the next pillar that Wilkerson talks about. She begins by uh, mentioning that uh, in India, father is who passed rank. However, in America, the children inherited the caste of their mother. And it was kind of crazy, you know, to think about that because as, like, I think you, me, the readers, our listeners, all understand is that the world is a very patriarchal society. Like, as much as we want to deny that, a lot of the times it is men who are championed as the leaders of the world. And to hear that like or at least like to see that like in the United States they changed that and to now make it so that it was the mother and those actually to enforce like that one one drop idea right that we talked about just in the last episode where they want people to be classified as uh, black in order to maintain the um, the economic value of slaves and everything because it becomes expensive to import people. And it's also dangerous because the money that you spend importing people can lead to those people that you're trying to use as manual labor to die on their way over here, blah, blah, blah. Much easier if you domesticate and kind of start breeding people. However, like, you know, it's kind of crazy too because it is like a way of um exercising patriarchal power as well by using the woman as the basis for a person's like citizenship because you take away all the power for the mother there and put all the power in the man especially the white man at the time because they're free to do whatever they want if they want to rape uh one of their slaves are more than welcome to because that woman were to bear children, then he gets another slave. 
And she can't really say anything about that either. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think there's a lot of context here for for how much such a such a rule, like the heritability rule that she outlines is, right? Like we're talking about it in a very clinical sense. Um, because that's the sort of distance, at least in my head, that I needed to put in while I was absorbing this book, because it's filled with just horrible things that that people have done to each other in the name of superiority, in the name of maintaining something like the caste system. And to me, I think about the 1600s, and I, it's like the the I think there was like a joke that sort of went around a few years ago about like time travel and how it's basically like it always has to be a white male character that's time traveling because otherwise like you're you're screwed right in horrific ways and that's what I'm thinking about right now because the things that we're talking about and the things that we were mentioning are are so like I when I I think that was one of the things I was shocked about when I got to part three where I was like wait if, if you're talking about if you're talking about the 1600s or the 1700s with me I'm not going to say that that anything was ever going to be decided by the identity of the mother of a child that wouldn't have happened and then I then it you know she starts outlining just how sick and depraved the that decision is because it allows for the ownership of the enslaver and the slaveholder to continue to to hold on to that power and and that like feeds into Jim Crow laws and, and all of the violence that was um, that has come about from the accusations of white women, for example, right? Like the the case, um, the Chicago, the is it the Chicago? No, it's not Chicago. It's the Parkland Five. Am I remembering the term incorrectly? It's the the five young teenagers that were imprisoned for a very long time based on the accusations of think one eyewitness and forced confessions and and this isn't a story that you know has is new in any way this happened with the um with the lady that called the police on that black man in the park that was bird watching and just knew that she would be taken seriously just because she was a white woman um and we're seeing that everywhere and the reason that we're pointing that out as like a clearer integral part of pillar two is because the we want to be really clear about the extent of the cruelty that was imposed and that it was done in a in a methodical thought out way and we say this I think we've said this before and we'll continue to say it is that the systems that we currently live in now were created to oppress people and the idea of reform has to take into account that they were built on these values, on the values of owning Black bodies, on the, on the values of not giving Black women proper treatment during labor. And that's why we have higher mortality rates among Black women than we do among white women. So it's a very long point, but I just wanted to make sure that we're, we're seeing it in, the, in that context as well. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a very valid point there. And yeah, it's a good place to, like, you know, if you are, if, like, someone is having, like, that disconnect, you know, about, like, marrying this idea together. And 
the other thing that like she does talk about mainly in this part also though is that um you because of this idea of like your heritability right and like judging people based on their skin color because most of the time you know if you have darker melanin on your skin it just shows up more than like the whiter pigments and um it made it so that your color became an identity in the United States. And um, an example that we that we kind of pulled out and is much more like recently is that um, there was a army officer that was pulled over for a traffic stop from like not having proper plates or something. And the man was pepper sprayed for, you know, not complying with the officer even though like there's body cam footage and everything showing that the man was doing everything in his power and it kind of the point that like we want to make with it is that it didn't matter if this guy was dressed in like army fatigues or like something you know showing that he is this status in the world because of his skin color there's kind of like this perception already that like untrustworthy whereas you know if you take someone with much lighter complexion and put them in that situation most of the time people are much more trusting of you you know like when they see what you look like they're like oh yeah you know fine whatever we'll let you off with a warning blah 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 things like that and like i also think that just this whole idea of like heritability kind of like determining your uh who you were back then and kind of it determines who you will like like about things now is that it does undermine that idea of the american dream right where people are told that oh yeah no if you just like strap down your boots you can work your way up from the bottom and like you'll you'll get to the top at one point but that's not really the case right like people are born in much less uh economically stable areas or just have way more things going on in their lives due to like their families maybe being you know persecuted against back then and that just creates a big imbalance of like power and like that'll affect how people will succeed later on and it's always it's nice to look at anomalies and like outliers but then people here's the thing right people it's a double-edged sword where when it comes to success you can point out an outlier and be like if they did it how come you guys can't do it however when it's something bad people like to use those outliers as what they are outliers oh it was just that one time, right? And it's crazy because that dynamic usually works like when it's a white person versus a person of color, right? Where outliers in the white population are outliers. They are. That's not who we are. That's just them. Whereas outliers in the black and like not black communities in general, but just like person of colors, like community in general is like, oh, like, that outlier has like 
either it's used as a blanket statement for people or as this idea that like how come you guys can't be that either you know like and it's kind of crazy and um that inequality idea as well it's it just rung it, it just like i just made a connection a few days ago right where um i was driving around um live in the city called uh, Brentwood, right? And not Brentwood in Los Angeles, but Brentwood in uh, Northern California. And it's right next to another city named Antioch, which does have like a little bit of a reputation about not being, you know, so nice and everything. And um, the divide between Antioch and Brentwood is very subtle. Like, it's very small about like where the borders of the city change. I was driving around and there was this uh I don't know if it was new homes being built or like an apartment complex, but um they were advertising that that area was in the Brentwood School District. Even though like they're actually in a part that looks pretty close towards Antioch. As far as I know, the what is it? The think the in and out that's like close to there is classified as antioch can't remember but anyway the fact that like that's an advertisement to pull people to want to buy in that area is crazy because if you're in the brentwood school district you're going to be going to a school with much more funding probably than like what is funded towards like the neighboring city that's just because the the student success rates vary right but it varies because one gets a whole lot more support than the other like and i think that just shows like this inequality right that's happened where brentwood yeah is a majority like white and asian community whereas antioch is a majority of more uh, people like the like latinos and uh blacks you know so it because of that that creates that disparity between the two cities even though they're just right next to each and the fact that like going to one school district is automatically better than the others already kind of disgusting to me you know i always think like people should always be on equal grounds on everything even though yeah it might not be financially possible i think that's something that we should be striving for, you know? Yep. Where you live should not indicate how good of an education you get mm-hmm. or how much access you have to good nutrition or how much mm-hmm. access you have to green cover in your community. You know, like there's just endless list of things. Yeah. I think we're going to keep it moving to pillar three. Does that sound good? Yeah. So pillar three is sort of, I think, honestly, an extension of, pillar two but it's called the um endogamy i don't know how to say that word and the control Mm. of marriage and mating so um we don't have a ton to add here because it like we said it it is it is sort of an extension of pillar two and and sort of the control of of you know who gets to marry who and of course by that extension who gets to have children with whom and the one drop rule that we that we spoke about in episode two um, does come back here and 
Um, it's actually really interesting. I watched uh, Loving last week, um, the movie about the Supreme Court case that um, allowed for interracial marriage to exist. And I think it was a case in 67, I'm pretty sure. Um, and it describes this um, white man and this black woman from, uh, I think, Georgia. Is it Georgia? Oh, God. I'm, I'm, I'm messing up every detail of, of this uh, story. But it's a really, really beautiful movie. And I think um, the, the point that Wilkerson makes in the book is that that was another mode of control that society ascribed to control populations and, and to make sure that families were maintaining segregation, even in, you know, social norms or, 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 you know, big events in your life, like getting married and having children, um, which, and I really want to add here that marriage laws were, were controlled in that way. But as you know, we said in the, in the last point, there is such a brutal history of controlling black women and of, and, and, and the history of inter racial um, children comes from a really dark place in history when white men and white slaveholders took it upon themselves to do whatever they wanted and children that resulted from um, from rape were the children that then passed on to continue to be slaves uh, uh, continue to be slaves and the reason I bring that up is because that's obviously not within the construct of marriage, which was what was outlawed, but in order to uphold the system and in order to um, allow white men to do whatever they wanted, that was never illegal, the existence of, of, of mixed children. And, the, um, and, and I think that's a really interesting parallel within this point because obviously intercaste, not intercaste marriage, that's a different topic interracial marriage um, was was controlled as a, as a means of making sure there was no legitimate or legitimized couples that were interracial in society because that you know would be an affront to the system that they, that they were upholding. Um, and we found like a couple of you know interesting statistics that we might add before moving on to pillar four which is that um, we found the percentages of current uh, interracial marriage in the United States. So here, according to the Pew Research Center, uh, roughly 17, 16 to 17% of marriages that take place in the United States are interracial. And we've also pulled the numbers according to a Princeton study that intercaste marriages, so that's marriages between different castes in India, is roughly 5%. And the, the number fluctuates depending on what state you're talking about, but roughly uh, 5% of marriages are intercaste. So, and I think that that should be a, a point to, um, to think about in our minds because we're talking about systems that are still continuing to, you know, marry within their quote unquote ethnicities. Um, for very small differences between um, between races in terms of like you know features in your face or your skin color, there are you know 
like 0.01% of our DNA is what dictates those differences. And we are still abiding by them, whether that's the caste system in India or whether that's um, the institutionalized racism in the United States, a majority of people are still continuing to marry within their ethnicities. Um, and it just goes to show that the third pillar that, that we're talking about is still in effect today. Yeah, no, no, we briefly talked about this. I think this is one of the last points also that we talked about that was a little bit further back than a much more recent note. But um, we do also have like this idea of like fetishizing people of colors, people of color as well, that um, you know, plays a role as well in that power dynamic because sometimes you know some of these like ideas that people have about other people outside of their ethnicity come from like a we like a stereotypical portrayal of they have the most common thing right is that idea of like uh like yellow fever with uh Asians and everything and like we have the very subservient nature of like Asian people in general being used as like a reason why like you want a Asian bride right is like you're gonna have a woman that is like very subservient to you and is very much like you know oh you know like I want to please you they're gonna be a homemaker because yeah (laughs) but that there's that idea of the that does persist in society as well and it does make like sometimes like it muddles the idea of like interracial marriage as well because some people are marrying people outside of their race for wrong reasons and that's why there's like domestic abuse between like that kind of stuff going on but... Yeah, this is all so complicated, right? Like the kinds of things we're talking about are so interwoven. Like there's like really messed up stuff from like probably thousands of years ago to hundreds of years ago to like a decade ago to now. And it like, it's just this overlap between like things that we've been taught and ingrained in society. Like the guy that I think talks about how he felt the need to wash his hands after like shaking hands with a with a black person. And he just felt like... I don't know if I'm skipping ahead, but like, and, and that's, that's how he felt is, is like ingrained in society. But then there's other things that like media with almost every main character being a white person, um, constantly making you feel like you can't be anyone in power or have any ability if you're not a white person. So Cleveland, you want to, do you want to take us to pillar four? Yeah, and that little... That was a segue. (laughs) That little preview that you said, you know, pillar four, purity versus pollution. Wilkerson dives, quote-unquote, ha-ha-ha, dives because she uses water as a big metaphor in this uh, part of the book, where um, her main point is that um, by separating and segregating people, it's been one of the most effective tools in making sure that there are class divisions within a society. And 
it's not just, you know, through race that most people like to think about when they think of segregation. But, you know, in India, the segregation of castes and everything, making sure that people have their titles and, like, the jobs that they're supposed to have within their caste. Um, We, excuse me, we talk about that idea where um, she quotes that... um, a dominant caste man in the 1970s from the South began serving in the military in the North. And every time he reached the point where he had to shake hands with a black person, he felt an automatic revulsion that had been trained into him. And uh, the washing hands quote was that, I felt an urge to wash my hands. Every rational impulse, all that I considered best in myself struggled against the surge. But the hand that had touched the dark skin had a will of its own and would not be dissuaded from signaling it was unclean. That is what I mean by madness. Now, she puts it in this quote because, one, you know, the military, this idea of serving your country. the You kind of erase people's race in that sense, right? If you sign up or, like, are conscripted towards the army or any military you have this idea that you're fighting for the flag and not just, like, you know, for something else. You're fighting for your country. The people you're fighting with are countrymen, and no matter what, they're there to serve their, like, your guys' country, not anything else. So it shouldn't matter what person's skin color is, what their religious beliefs are, things like that. You are there to be unified under this, like, organization. However, this person who, like, she she describes this person as someone who was raised by, like, black women and everything, you know, from being from the South. However, those same, like, color hands would still repulse him, and it would lead to him washing his hands, which is kind of, like, it, it just shows how successful, like, it's been an ingraining this idea, right? That like darker skin tones lead to like you're more dirty or like you're just untrustworthy because I don't know where things have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have color, like colorism is obviously just one aspect of what she talks about, right? But, you know, in India, the, the colorism is like runs so deep that like, almost every like character that's cast as a villain in most movies is typically has darker skin than the main character and the love interest in the movie. So the hero, the heroine, and then the villain, the hero and the heroine will always be multiple, multiple shades lighter than the villain. Um, and it's, it's nuts how much, like, like I'll have an impulse not to go out into the sun and it's like, I can't get out of it. Like my head like will just constantly be like, you're in the sun, you're in the sun, you're in the sun because I'm going to get darker, which apparently is a terrible thing. And, um, you know, I wish it was, the reasoning was like, you might get skin cancer. You shouldn't be out in the sun. No, no, it's because I'll get darker. And it's it's so hard to 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 train yourself out of those 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 silos. And we're talking about something very, very simple. The thing that Wilkerson is talking about is like, 
is so many layers and that's why there are eight pillars because all of them work together to to subjugate and to in, enshrine the system into this like rigid construct that you can never ever disassemble unless you know you know you like set fire to the whole thing mm-hmm. yeah like i think the um, i think the point also that we can get more into now is like how like we we'd go further on this topic and uh the idea that i had when i had like created this is that you know the world actually is created with numerous like hierarchies being put in place and doesn't just have to be like this race thing right there's also religious hierarchy there's the idea the practice of like like of being monarchs and then like even in democracy there's a hierarchy and as people we just find a lot of comfort being led by something and it's because you know i think mistakes are one of the biggest things that people don't want to be associated with so it's much easier if you feel like you're being led somewhere because you remove yourself from that idea of like oh it's completely my fault you know but at the same time it also makes it so that if you are in doubt of something and like the higher power instead or the higher person like justifies your thinking then you're like oh well i had no doubt anyway you know like now i good and it was just crazy because at the time that like you know hierarchies were forming and everything the united states was the first place in the world that really created like a racial hierarchy like yes yeah, slaves had existed back then you know but like it wasn't like indentured servants were also a thing like being serfs and everything you weren't always in your kind of situation you were allowed to move up at a certain point you know after you've repaid your debts things like that like you're not always in the direct servitude of someone eventually like your bonds will be broken however in the united states we like you know, especially in the South, the Southern economy relied so much on manual labor in order to make sure that they're producing the crops and everything and, like, making sure they are able to export it at a rate that it is, that'll sustain the country, right? That they needed to make sure that people were constantly in servitude of others. And that's why, like, they created like the whole hierarchy of like like the whole racial hierarchy and like that view like you said you know like lighter skin and everything they were able to spread that view around the world where even in countries where people are marginally not like completely darker than the typical like caucasian white like european person right are still striving for those as the beauty standard. And, like, you know, your story about being in the sun and being scared of that, right? In the Philippines, that was a thing, too. Like, one, whitening products in the Philippines, big market, big market. You, you Huge. Can, yeah. You can go to, like, a store and there are soaps advertised to whiten your skin. 
like how <laughs> really how do you <laughs> do that other than like permanently bleaching your skin how are like you can go yeah maybe like a tone or two lighter but it's never gonna be like i will become like a, i'll become like a transparent human being kind of <laughs> deal but that is like one thing that the united states was able to successfully do is that they're able to always cre- like put the idea that a white person is on top no matter what like being that skin color you will have the best of the best and it's just it's crazy how much that influence like persists and like continues on in the world and like you know it makes it hard for just things to advance in general because the minute like people see that someone is darker than them automatically they already have this idea you know that like oh yeah like not better blah 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 like, um, yeah, that's kind of like one of her big points here is that race just made it such a big deal. And I think, yeah, it is one of the most like effective ways that, um, one of the most effective pillars in holding up this whole idea of caste system, right? Yeah, I am sort of remembering this um, this seminar that I was part of. It's like one of my favorite, I think, things that I did when I was in my AmeriCorps service term was this lecture that we got from a teacher from Facing History, which is a fantastic organization that's trying to change how we teach history to children. And I'll never forget this talk and the the framing of the talk and sort of the, the thesis statement that I think the teacher was trying to ingrained into us was that race was created as a construct to justify racism. And what we're talking about in this pillar, I think pillar four is essentially that we're talking about a industrial and economical construct that was created to take advantage of an entire 12 generation of generations of people and it continues on today with within the oligarchical structure that we currently have where where people are working for $7 an hour, $8 an hour. You know, predominantly black and brown people that are working for for the for those wages. Um and race was created, enshrined and defended as a construct and they fought a war to try to keep it. Um, and I honestly think of this work by Isabel Wilkerson as a clinical study of how that was created and how it continues to be enforced and defended because it only serves, you know, a certain fringe population. Um, cause we're not even talking about all white people and she gets into that later in the book too. We're just talking about, you know, the top 1%. And I feel like I need to do the, the little Bernie finger while I say it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think now we should transition to pillar number five. 
Yeah, pillar number five is occupational hierarchies, the Jatis and the Matsu. Um, We didn't go too much into detail on, on what her point is for this. And obviously in the course of this podcast, we highly, highly recommend that you check out this book. But um, essentially her point in pillar five is what I was just saying before, which is creating an economy around segregation to give it validity. Um, and I think Cleven, you wanted to add something here about sort of the construct that we live in now. Yeah, and like um, currently, you know, segregation isn't technically happening in the United States. Over, <laughs> Quote unquote, like, it, technically. Yes, always everything is technically things aren't happening. But the idea that foundations of a successful economy in a society have to rest on overworked and underpaid workforce does continue and most countries uh, have subscribed to the idea of capitalism has used its policies to further the wealth of those lucky enough to benefit years ago and maintain their place however they it relies on those that are less fortunate to continue working for them under the guise that one day you you the worker will eventually be at the top as well just by working hard, you know? And if you actually think about it, like the worker is compensated with just a small fraction of wealth that like ultimately doesn't actually matter to the person at the top, right? Like looking at mega corporations or um, Amazon is the big, big no brainer here. Yeah. I think we wouldn't even call it wealth, right? Because you just said a fraction of wealth. Wealth is something that you can pass on to other people. If we're talking about what 40% of Americans don't even have like several hundred bucks for an emergency, like fixing your car or, you know, changing, um, changing something for your child, like you don't even have a couple hundred dollars for an emergency of, of that size. So we're not talking about wealth. We're talking about like survival money. Yeah, that that's very true. Like it's it's crazy to think, right, that um yeah, like some people are like very lucky. Like everyone likes to I think like they fetishize that idea too of like they get off on it that like this person was successful. If you take into what? How Jeff Bezos started Amazon, right? What what was it? People like to talk about that I that beginning story of he started selling books out of his garage now how was he how was it possible to do that the guy got a loan from his parents i believe that helped them out in making sure that that was a possible thing right if you a person right now like let's say you're someone who thinks you can compete with amazon but you want to start with the same way amazon started but you're not fortunate enough to have extra money from yourself or from someone else lying around what do you actually think is going to be your success rate right like it's very small because there's a lot of things you have to consider in being able to do this and yeah no time does factor into the thing like the earlier you get into the game the easier it is to build wealth however like not everyone is lucky enough to have like that foresight into things right like if you're someone that comes from a true middle class family in the sense that 
the middle class family is working. Both parents are working. And like, yes, they might have some college or have finished college, but what they're doing maybe is outside of their degree that they finished or like, it's not a one-to-one relation to the degree they finished. Then the idea that you have now is that like, you have to kind of finish school and then you have to work to make money. You're not taught anything else because your parents, like, maybe they don't have that idea to them. It's like, no, we're just working to make sure, like, our kids have, like, a much nicer future. But other than that, they're not really, like, informed about anything else. So, like, you as a person, like, yeah, you can say, like, oh, it's up to you as a person to do your research and kind of find a way for yourself to make money, right, or whatever but you're not really afforded that sometimes because to you, you're always in survival mode already. Like you grow up thinking, right? Oh, I don't want to be a burden to my parents anymore. I don't want them working and working just for me. I want to get them out of that habit, you know, maybe make it so that they're working for themselves now, not just for you. So you find that you find a job to make sure you're independent from your parents. And then like you get into the same hole, right? And it becomes a cycle. And unfortunately, like, the way that things are going right now, that cycle is very reliant. Like, the society is very reliant on that cycle of people not knowing enough and just being stuck in, like, this work mode that they're not allowed to pursue anything higher. However, like, to maintain people in that cycle, you have to tell them, no, you just keep working and working and eventually, you know, you'll break out of it. When in reality, that's not how you're actually going to break out of that cycle. So um, I think in terms of the caste system, that's been very much apparent in that there's always that false promise of being able to get out. In the United States, it's almost always economic freedom. That is the biggest promise that people are made, that economic freedom will come eventually. If we look at the caste system in India, it's that eventually in the next life because you've paid for your sins now you are gonna be born better like you will be in a much better situation later Mm -hmm. on and like it's always just this promise that you are hopeful for when in reality like you know sometimes you kind of have to sit down and think like will that promise ever truly be fulfilled right like And I know in the actual caste system in India, it's much harder to come out with that kind of thinking because as we've talked about in that very first part of the pillars, religion, to go against your religion is already a big deal. Like to have that disconnect of your own religion, it's a big deal. And like most people don't want that. However, in the United States, right, like, Like I said, most people like to subscribe to that idea of, like, outliers and championing outliers as this thing. Where in reality, you don't, you can make everyone have the opportunity to truly be that outlier by providing a much more equal opportunity thing for them. I'm not saying, like, affirmative action, equal opportunity, but what I mean is, like, actually investing in communities and making sure that every community is in a somewhat equal level 
so people are allowed to focus on what will make them better as opposed to having to focus on external factors and like disregarding something sometimes that might make them better yeah Yeah, i think so and i think um like what you were talking about the the indian caste system it's actually exactly the message that christian missionaries used on my great-grandparents when they converted to christianity is if you convert you no longer have to ascribe to a system that dehumanizes you and that's why you know half of my family is christian is because that's what the, the message they were told and actually countless numbers of christian people that live within the caste system in india are from the low caste people that heard and were told like christ sees all of you as equal there is no hierarchy amongst you and that was a massive selling point um, for the Christian missionaries that that came that came to India, um, yeah, I think we want to keep it moving. Oh yeah, pillar number six with dehumanization and stigma, which you know it's the belief that slaves were less than humans, and that did persist. And in the context of hierarchies, like it's another tool that was used to preserve like the caste system because it removed any emotions that others would feel towards those that are subjugated like basically you're like these people aren't human to me they they're just what they are you know like the same thing as like animals and like we talk about um you know this quote that she has where both nazi germany and the u.s reduced their outgroups and in both cases individuals were lumped together for sharing a single stigmatizing trait made indistinct and indistinguishable in preparation for the exploitation and atrocities that would be inflicted upon them. In this case, like Jews in Nazi Germany and African Americans in the United States. Individuality, after all, is a luxury afforded the dominant caste. Individuality is the first distinction lost to the stigmatized. And, like, I think, like, Framing is a very important thing when it comes to, like, agendas. And, like, you can create a frame around someone that, instead of it being, like, a picture frame, it is actually a cage. And what that cage does is it removes that the picture is of another human being, and instead is just this caricature. And now you're you're able to justify why they're in that cage, because you take all of the negative traits that you might find in one person and like blanketly apply it to everyone else like you know i can blanketly state that like all white people are racist and are very privileged right just because like what let's say it's because i've seen people like do that be completely affluent and just disregard the struggles that other people are facing however like a lot of people can make the the argument that they're not that's not who they are as an individual right but like now if we flip it and like put it in the person of color quite a lot of people don't give person of color like the benefit of the doubt of arguing for their individualism um we can look at one of those cases right of like what like former president trump had used with like mexicans rapists drug dealers like that that's who they are that's a blanket statement based on like a few individuals that like you know 
the ones that may be incarcerated or there was that one case in san francisco and what trump was using as an argument against like asylum cities and that like oh you see this man he shot this woman what is he he's a murderer all latino people are murderers hence it justifies like the act like actually just like caging them up more you know like it was already happening but now we can do it in full force kind of deal like that's just that's disgusting to me like you it, it again removes people's humanity and i think at the end of the day like we we allow like people on death row their humanity like if you think about it that way right like yes some people have like there's death penalties that have happened and like that or that still persists in states but like when that happens you still give them that last shred of humanity by quote-unquote giving them a last meal they're afforded a meal of their choosing so like at the end of the day you didn't completely strip them of it but yeah yeah, uh, I think, and then if we want to get into the death penalty, I feel like we could do a whole series of episodes on the population that's most likely to be on death row and the population that is more likely to lose appeals and not be afforded lawyers. And Oh, God, I feel like we can't use like any analogies for things because there's always like another whole thing in that analogy that we would have to deconstruct to be able to do it. So I'm just going to put a pin in that. And we're going to move on to seven because this episode's getting a little, a little lengthy. Um, so pillar seven is the, is using terror as enforcement cruelty as a means of control. So the point that she makes in, in this pillar is to make sure that the oppressed subscribe to the system created um, and that those in power have now have to enforce it by exercising their power over the weak. So the idea is that the superiority that, you know, white people are given within the system, they're actually encouraged to use that power to be able to, you know, uphold that system, whether they like it or not. Um, and actually, I think, Cleveland, do you want to uh, share that, um, the excerpt here? Oh, yeah. So um she talks about this uh, little story about that starts off uh, one day in the mid 18th century. It was a Presbyterian, um, I think, like official or clerk was uh, walking past and had heard someone scream so much that it sounded like they were about to die. Right. And Presbyterian man approaches and sees that, uh, there is a slave that had just been whipped quite a lot by the slave owner. And when the Presbyterian man had asked this person um, what had happened, the slave owner had said that the, the slave had committed an injustice by talking back to him on a topic that the slave should not have talked to him about. The topic was that it was the slave was planting corn unevenly and the slave had said it doesn't matter how even they are because it's just as likely that it's going to grow crooked than it is going to grow straight and the slave owner didn't like that so he whipped them and the presbyterian man mind you 
says like, okay, then that is a fair punishment for this man. And later on, she contrasts this with another story of uh, this Yale anthropologist going down to the South again later on and noticing that, uh, you know, the black people over there were much more likely to step out of his way and would, you know, not re like be more respectful, quote unquote. And he ends up going on this little ride with uh, some some white people, and they approach a black uh, sharecroppers like area, and the black sharecroppers would not leave their little cabin when the white people like approached on their truck, and that was when the Yale anthropologist made the made the statement that like wow like the black people here are much more like respectful and then that's when the man just laughs out that like they have to be and it's because they have been conditioned to have the trauma of being beat almost to death ingrained in them and this fear has been one of the most like crucial ways in really like making sure that people stay subjugated because they just no matter how used to like abuse you get you don't like the abuse like you can be used to it but that doesn't mean like you like what's going on so you don't want it to happen anyway right yeah you you want to add more yeah i think i think it's similar to like you know obviously not a parallel but it's like similar to what we've been talking about like the the socioeconomic mobility piece right of of having to work two jobs and then not being able to get a higher paying job because you don't have the generational wealth that can send you to college and if you want to work those two jobs then you would have to do like part-time college and then like you let's say had to file an insurance claim and then the claim got denied you don't have the ability to call them to like work it out and take an hour out of your day to go do that and so then you get fined. Like these are the kinds of things that add on when you can't escape that like cyclical cycle. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's like very similar to what we're talking about here where oppression is like a full-time job. Yeah. Like to be oppressed is a full-time job. And that's, I think one thing that she really tries to, to make really clear in all of the pillars and in, in stuff that you've talked about, stuff that I've talked about and one of the things that made me think of was Mac, Max Weber's definition of a state. And um, for him, it was the monopoly over the legitimate use of physical force or violence within a given territory. And the threat of violence is honestly the biggest piece, I think, of this puzzle. And that's why um, so much of the protests that happened last year were about defunding the police and were about changing the very nature of how we dole out punishment or the nature of how we get each other to do something that is good for the public. And a real reckoning, I think, on like a human rights scale of whether this punishment is really just society deciding together that like this is how we should treat people or rather it's a remnant of of slavery and the economization of of one of the you know most horrifying parts of human history at least in the united states and on this land 
Um, and if we treat refugees a certain way, or if we treat indigenous populations a certain way, because that's what this system has been built on, um, which is why I think in like, in, in the most progressive moments in my brain, I, I wonder if reform is even what we should be talking about. If it's like, how do you reform something that's, you know, that's been built from a place of hate and from a place of trying to take advantage of people? Download the system. <laughs> that's right. You want to do pillar eight? Yeah. And yeah, it's, we're kind of going to go fast on this one because yeah, we are quite over time now. But um, the very last pillar that she talks about is pillar number eight, which is inherent superiority versus inherent inferiority. And like, just the gist of this is the points that both Allah and I have been making throughout this whole thing in that like, there's this idea of people that, that people have prescribed, pr- subscribed to about being superior over others instead of looking at it in the sense that like no everyone's actually on equal footing and that instead of playing towards like the power dynamic that like some people deserve better things than others we should all strive towards this idea that like everyone deserves the equal thing and then everyone should just be allowed to make do with the equality like if people want to try to put themselves like on a higher like step than others and they're welcome to do that where some people might be content with where they are and that they're welcome to do that and some people might not might want to take a step down or like you know make choices that put them at a lower step and they're also allowed to do that but in the end like people should just always be given that equal ability just by saying that like you know if we look at education Every kid is afforded a K through 12 education in the United States. It's easy to think there that it's like, oh, yeah, then everyone's equal. Everyone gets the K through 12 thing. However, the curriculums for K through 12 are very different depending on where you live. You could be fortunate and have a place that emphasizes learning and puts resources and invests in making sure that kids want to stay in the K through 12 system. Or you can be, you could grow up in a place where it's disregarded and it doesn't matter like how you perform in school because you could like, they talk about like, or not talk about it, but like they just don't fund enough into there. They make it so that people ha- don't get any interesting classes that make, that would make them want to stay in school, you know? Things like that, where a lot of the time, like, it's just because of this inherent superiority versus inferiority idea. And, yeah, I think the overall message is that we should we should look for equality and be happy to elevate people towards a status where everyone is equal and have people just go off from there. Yeah, I like that. And I think we can sort of close out this episode um, with one of the stories that she actually ends this part of the book with. So, and I'll start reading. In the slaveholding South, some in the dominant caste grew so accustomed to the embedded superiority built into their days 
and the brutality that it took to maintain it, that they wondered how they might manage in the afterlife. Is it possible that any of my slaves could go to heaven? A dominant caste woman in South Carolina asked her minister, and must I see them there? A century after the slaveholder spoke those words, the caste system had survived, mutated, its pillars intact. America was fighting in, the, in World War II and the public school district in Columbus, Ohio decided to hold an essay contest challenging students to consider the question, what to do with Hitler after the war? It was spring of 1944, the same year that a black boy was forced to jump to his death in front of his stricken father over the Christmas card the boy had sent to a white girl at work. In that atmosphere, a 16-year-old African-American girl thought about what should befall Hitler. She won the, essay, the student essay contest with a single sentence, put him in black skin and let him live the rest of his life in America. All right, thanks everyone for listening in uh, for this week's episode of Here's the Thread. My name is Ala Jolly. My name is Cleveland Deleuze. And we will be back next time with part four of Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, as well as our thoughts on whatever terrible or wonderful thing human beings do decide to do to each other. Stay safe, eat more vegetables, and vote in your local elections. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Here's the Thread and follow us on whatever podcast platform that you're listening to us on.